Welcome to TCN Talks. The goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant, need-to-know information to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader, and for the team at all levels of the organization. Our goal is concise and relevant information because brevity signals respect. And the bookends of our podcast are always something to make you think deeper about life, about our topic, or both. And now, here's Chris Como. Hello and welcome. Before we get started today, I want to thank our sponsor, Delta CareX. Delta CareX is our title sponsor for our 2022 Telios Collaborative Network Leadership Immersion Courses. Delta CareX is the premier vendor of TCN and provides pharmacy benefit management services that allow their clients to experience deep discounts utilizing a preferred local network of pharmacies that can provide same-day delivery when necessary. Just want to thank the whole Delta CareX team for the great work that they do in our hospice segment. Also, just a quick plug, our next Telehouse Collaborative Network Leadership Immersion course is the week of November 7th. This training has been reviewed as some of the most potent and powerful leadership training hospice and palliative care leaders have ever been through. So join us. Go to Telehouse, T-E-L-E-I-O-S-C-N.org, and look under Courses. Our guest today is Gloria Brooks. She's the founder of G. Brooks & Associates Consulting. She's a national leader in strategic planning for nonprofit hospice and palliative care organizations. Gloria and her team specialize in innovative back-office care delivery and end-of-life care partnership models. Gloria, it's so good to have you. Welcome. Thanks so much, Chris, for inviting me to share my perspectives with our listeners today. Now I'm looking forward to this, this discussion. So what else does our audience yeah. need to know about you before we jump in? Well, I actually started my um, professional career in the social service side of things, not healthcare. The first 12 years were rooted in domestic violence and abuse prevention organizations, kind of tied to my social work um, background. And I transitioned into hospice when one of my grad uh uh, professors worked at a hospice. And so she introduced me to this amazing, comprehensive, um, compassionate service model I, I was not familiar with at all. And that kind of pulled me in. And so for the past 23 years, I've been focused on end-of-life care. I've led two legacy nonprofit organizations, both here in Michigan, where I am now, and out in Colorado. And then in 2020, I started doing consulting for hospice organizations. And I think listeners would want to know, I'm very passionate about empowering patients and families to embrace their life's journey all of it, beginning to every every day. And I think most of us in hospice have heard families say, gosh, I wish I would have known about hospice and palliative care before I started receiving services. And because of that, I think I have a unique perspective on all the changes that are impacting hospice organizations in our industry and how they impact not only the hospice, but also team members and staff and patients and families. Well, well, I know the first time you and I talked, we I think we connected on that passion. And then when yeah. I heard more about your research, so that'll actually be a great segue. So you've done some really interesting research regarding the hospice segment and specifically hospice networks, um, which is obviously dear, near and dear to my heart. So just share a yep. little bit about your research. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, based on my experiences in creating a nonprofit affiliation model in Michigan and then implementing uh, another nonprofit affiliation in Colorado, I've had many hospice leaders ask me about the different types of hospice um, 
uh, models that there are and trying to figure out how do we thrive in this value-based healthcare future. And the majority of my work has been with um, legacy nonprofits, facilitating strategic plans for them. And all of those engagements have focused on what's the best path to serving the community in the face of all these, these changing reimbursement models and competition and staffing. And so for me, the central question in the value-based insurance design model was having the scale and both from geography and, and employee size and a continuum of care um, having services that reach folks early on so that we can compete for these national um, insurance contracts. And to do that, I started looking for analyses out there on what the nonprofit affiliation model's impact had been over the last 10 to 15 years. It's really where we saw the beginning of them. And I couldn't find any, so I decided to do that research myself. Um, and when I was CEO at Arbor Hospice and Palliative Care here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I started to um, develop an affiliation model with our board of directors. And we were one of the first back in 2014. There weren't many models to compare to at the time because, again, it was just kind of getting off the ground. Now there are dozens of affiliation models in some form or another. And I think our hospice organizations today have the benefit of using comparisons. And I use the Hush Blackwell um, hospice network model for, for this research comparison. Um, there are four different models in Hush Blackwell's um, uh, analysis. There's a common ownership model, which a lot of people know as sole membership. There's a messenger model and then a financially and a clinically integrated model. So, Starting from there and then pulling in um, publicly available financial information, all, all hospices filed 990s with the IRS. And so I was shoulder deep in data for weeks, uh, creating financial profiles for 17 different um, hospice nonprofit affiliations that are currently existing here in the country. And after that, I was able to review and glean some comparisons. The bottom line for me is that none of the nonprofit models have the impact that the for-profit national companies do because they're much bigger. And I think that's a wake-up call to us on the nonprofit side. If we really want nonprofit hospice to survive, we have to get more serious about what the future has brought us, because really the future has already started, and how best for us to thrive. Wow. Well, I definitely, I want to delve deeper, because there's a lot, there's a lot there in what you just there's said. There's a lot there, yeah. But before we do, I think there's probably a critical element that we've got to talk about. There's a lot of data about culture and how that mm -hmm. is just a huge uh, factor, and it has huge impact on success in any strategy. So what have you found regarding the competencies out there for hospices that are just important for them to be able to embrace change and navigate the opportunities of, of doing these various network models? Culture is, is critical. And I find it really interesting that while we're, if we have our clinical hat on, regardless of discipline, working in hospice and palliative care, we help patients and families every day with change. I mean, they are, they're navigating the most personal change and while we are caring for them and then during their grief journey. Yet we're often in our, with our organizational hat on, we're stymied about how do we navigate change. And I believe if we use those same skill sets, we can develop some, some strong competencies. So 
I identified five. I think the first competency is we have to acknowledge that organizations have fundamentally changed. This is just like the experience when a person receives a life-limiting diagnosis. We have to acknowledge the stages of grief involved with that. With my social worker hat on, we know what all those are, right? We know that there's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and, and acceptance. We have to fundamentally celebrate where our organizations have been. Many of them been around for 40 years. Um, we have done amazing things. So we have to celebrate that and transition to the new, our new role within healthcare. And so Yes, there's grief with that, but there's also can be excitement on what we can now do, things that we weren't able to do if we were a, a smaller standalone that we can do now for patients and families. And I think by doing that, it doesn't discount our past experience. It just recognizes we have the resilience to move forward and be successful in that new environment. So that's first competency. Second, we've got to address the elephant in the room. What's in it for me? We have to answer that question for patients, families, staff and leaders, our board members and the community at large. Um, CEOs, I think, have to acknowledge our role, part of our role is preparing an organization for success at a time when we're not at the helm. And so we have to look at models to make sure that especially with the staffing crisis we have now, that our clinical staff are well taken care of. That doesn't mean ensuring that um, the CEO has a role in the new entity. It, it may not make sense at that point. And so I think um, the more we defer decisions on these changes, and we see a lot of nonprofit hospices doing that, thinking it just won't affect us, um, leads them into hurried deals and little negotiating power. I just, I think that is not helpful. And so really that competency of let's just answer the question, kind of going back to um, Jim Collins, let's address those brutal facts. Where mm -hmm. are we and how do we move forward? I think is important. That competency leads to the third one. And it's our ability to clearly articulate the why behind the what. If you think back from a hospice perspective, it's almost 50 years that we started here in, in the United States. We were a disruptor to healthcare back then. There were no organized systems of care for end of life. And we saw that gap and we said, we're going to step in. We're going to come up with a, a really amazing care model. Um, that was our why behind the what of starting a hospice organization. We have to do that again now. We have to figure out in this new environment of competition and the new reimbursement models, we, we have to be able to pivot. We do that well in a clinical setting. Again, we have to do it in an organizational setting. It's not the time to say, hey, we're comfortable here. We know how to do this well. And so we don't, we don't want to change. And I remind organizations all the time that healthcare has changed a lot in 50 years. Just think of our families 50 years ago. Think of how we want things different in a healthcare environment than our, our grandparents did. So of course, we as hospices, I think, should be leading the charge there. Why not? We have the capacity to do that. Um, that's important to me.
looking at um, involving uh, technology and telecare. Families have depended on it during the pandemic. We should not have it as an add-on to our service delivery model. It just should be part of what we do. Um, so those are three really important pieces. I'm going to pause there and we can talk about other competencies, but uh, I think if hospices could really flex their muscles and learn that those competencies, they'd be much better off than we are right now. Well, I was going to ask you if there are other leadership challenges, but I wonder if, do you want to share just briefly those other two competencies, but then maybe that dovetails if there are other leadership challenges that you've encountered, have you seen other people kind of journeying this? It does, actually. I think some of the other challenges tied to hospice leaders are tired. <laughs> I mean, it sounds uh, redundant to say it, but COVID, I think, just uh, exacerbated a lot of what is already a fast-paced role. And part of that ties into a fourth competency in terms of Assuming positive intent as you're selecting potential partners. Actually, Chuck Lee talked about this from Chapters Health uh, System, talked about this on a, a TCN broad, uh, podcast recently. We have to pay attention to our potential partners' track record, what their culture is. Because if we're coming together, we have cultures that are going to combine and something's going to emerge. And we have to recognize that every day in business, not even just in healthcare, those deals change after you implement them because there's new things that we find out. There's a variety of factors. And we have to have the foresight to think about some of that and um, and engage our board in those discussions. And so I I think that's a critical one that we, we could do more of in life in general, but certainly mm -hmm. here. And then the last competency is going back to determining, looking at clinical care models. How do we marry the value-based care and payer needs with the quality care provision and what patients and families need? There. We can do that, but that is going to require us to redesign clinical care models. Yep. And we can do that. Again, we have a history of doing that. We just need to remind ourselves that we don't have to be stuck in the original way. And that ties into the another leadership challenge related to getting great clinicians. How do we make sure especially again, pandemic, the impact that the pandemic had on everybody recognizes the need for work-life balances. Hospices need to rise to that occasion and figure out how to allow that flexibility for our clinicians, because we know we can't deliver care without them. Yep. So those are some of the other leadership challenges I see. Those are great. We could probably do an hour on each of those individually, <laughs> but I hear um, so let's go back to your research. And so what else mm -hmm. did your research and analysis uncover? Your comment about the for-profits really kind of perked my um, interest that, uh, so if I heard you right, you said that generally the data shows that they do it better. Um, could you unpack that a little bit more, but then also any other interesting nuggets in your research and analysis? Yeah, so I will definitely qualify that statement. I think the for-profits are better at scale and scope. They are serving more people across the country in one entity than we as a nonprofit um, 
uh, uh, partnerships are doing. And that's an important distinction. So Great I'm, I'm distinction. not saying Th- they thank you for saying providing that. <laughs> clear care uh, better. I'm saying that they are definitely serving more folks when you have a company that has, um, you know, 30,000 employees, none of the yes. affiliate affiliation models that I reviewed um, are able to do that right now. So I looked at five different factors in the research, location, size, revenue uh, for the hospice and palliative care service lines, and then margins. And then also looked at what type of model, again, are they um, using in terms of the Hush Blackwell definitions. So what I found was two-thirds of the partnerships are in the southern part of the United States. We can make inferences about why that is. A lot of of retirees are there, so that makes sense. Um, Two-thirds of them had um, between two and four affiliates or partners. So um, it's rare for us to see one. There was only one I found that had more than 20. And most of them were common ownership models. And Mm. so that was just, it's interesting that I think Early on, as was my experience at Arbor Hospice, the model that we knew was common ownership sole member, and we thought that is the only option out there. We know there are more. There are other options. Um, The other partnerships that I reviewed for this analysis were all under the $300 million revenue mark. Now, if I'm running a $20 million hospice, $300 million sounds big. But we know that is not big when you look at the for-profits. Um, and so some of the, I did some CEO interviews during this research, and some of their feedback said, really, nonprofit affiliation should be looking at at least a $500 million mark. And if that's the case, none of our current structures are meeting that. So yeah. that's an important thing. I also found that... Um, for hospices that were small, 10 million and under, most of them tended to be joining partnerships, not leading partnerships, because they recognize they don't have the bandwidth. So um, the other really important thing about the research for me was about margin. And we, you know, we've all heard what, no matter what kind of nonprofit we are, healthcare or otherwise, mar- you know, no margin, no mission, we know that. Um, and it's very important because we know revenue is declining. And so 60% of the partnership models that I reviewed had positive margins when you just looked at their 990s. But when you took out fundraising and investment income, margins dropped dramatically. So 75% of the same companies did not have a positive margin when you took that out. Wow. So that's important because... If we are estimating we're going to have a 15% gap in um, our costs and reimbursement indirects and all of that, nobody's achieving a 15% margin. Right. And so how do we ensure that nonprofit hospice is successful moving forward? Is that a factor that you put out, Gloria, when you're consulting to kind of figure a 15% cut over, what, the next five years, seven years? Um, we talked, uh, yes, in the next five years, and I think part of that is meant to be a wake-up call for some hospice organizations who, you know, many legacy nonprofits are blessed with strong community roots, amazing fundraising capacity. And so sometimes a foundation board will say, hey, we'll make up that difference. And if you break it down so that they they really understand what the implications are, there's no way for a foundation who's um, 
doing a great job raising a million dollars a year for a hospice to make up a 15% reduction. It's just not going to happen. And that's, I think, when light bulbs start to go off and they realize, oh, we need to look at something else. Well, well, here's another angle. You and I had a wonderful debate about this when we first talked when you were doing your research. And so mm-hmm. how far upstream do you think the continuum of care um, that hospices need to go to be relevant for the future? Um, mm-hmm. you know, so how far upstream? I think we need to get as far up as primary care for older adults, so geriatric practices, because people are aging, living with chronic conditions. We depend on that primary care to guide our our health and wellness and our recommendations for quality of life. So we're already way upstream as a consumer of healthcare, and most of us are not wanting to wait in the and really the antiquated model that hospice has right now, where we're just going to help you during the last six months of life. And we know, looking at data, really, it's only 60 days, right? The average length of stay, if we're doing well, is is 60 days for somebody who needs hospice services, and maybe a few months further upstream if we're providing a palliative care service. And so I think Really, we've got to figure out, especially as we look at the value-based insurance design model, we have to get much further upstream because reality is my insurance company will decide, well, they'll determine who my hospice provider is. It won't be me. It won't be because my mom had an amazing experience at such and such hospice and I want to go back there. I'll be going wherever the insurance company is going to pay. And so to be at the table... We have to expand our perspective on who our community is and apply our expertise. We have this expertise. We just have really only relegated it to the last six months of life. It's all applicable way upstream. Wow. So that's that's my thought on it. Good deal. Well, what final thoughts do you have? And I want to ask you about any favorite book or something you're currently reading. There's a bit fun to ask our guests recently on. Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, I think most importantly, most important for nonprofit hospices, they have to act now to determine and implement the best partnership model for their community. That's how they're going to ensure the provision of care continues to be what they're known for. They can't assume that reimbursement changes aren't going to impact them. So I, I really do think that's important. We have to look at administrative structures and service lines and because what made us successful to now will not ensure our success moving forward. For me, in terms of reading, it's been summertime reading. So I have been in in um, looking or finished reading the book called Taste uh, by Stanley Tucci. I'm Italian. I'm finally planning a trip out to Italy next year. And so I had to get ready. And so that was a, a great summer read. Good deal. That's awesome. Well, well, Gloria, thank you. I, we could have gone probably a couple of hours together. In fact, maybe I'll have you back because a couple of those things I'd love to delve in deeper, especially around the margin comment about the continuums of care, because those are huge subjects onto their own. Thank you for the work Very that true. you're doing out there for nonprofit hospices. Truly appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Chris. Well, to our listeners, always leave you with a bookend or a quote. And I ran this one by Gloria, so we thought this was a good one. It's from John Dewar, and it's Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.